Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. I met tonight's Speakeasy guest at APAC last year. That's the Audiobook Publishers Association Conference. And I was really excited to meet him because he narrated a novel that was written by a friend of mine, Waypoint Kangaroo by Curtis Chen. I believe he's also narrated the sequel at this point. He's an accomplished narrator who's narrated hundreds of books, both fiction and nonfiction. And he's well known as an expert in the area of accents and dialects. PJ Oakland, thanks for joining me in the Speakeasy tonight. It's my pleasure, Rich. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure, too. So uh, what are you drinking tonight here in the Speakeasy? Uh, well, since we're in the Speakeasy, I had to make it official. Uh, I, I've i got a bit of a reputation. I don't know if this is a good thing or not, but when uh, fellow narrators and friends come over to the house, we have a lot of PJ Manhattan parties. So oh. that is my cocktail of choice. I make the house Manhattan. Tonight's uh, special I made with Michter's Rye, uh, which was a gift from my friend, fellow narrator extraordinaire, Eric Martin. So uh, shout out to Eric for the uh, for the lovely gift of Michter's rye, uh, which I have uh, put the house uh, Manhattan recipe on with a little bit of uh, uh, sweet vermouth and triple bitters. So sometimes I mix it up. But tonight it's Fee Brothers orange bitters, the classic bitters from Fee Brothers, which kind of has a winter spice and also Peixo bitters. Little shake of each, the uh, sweet vermouth and the rye shaken up with a frozen dark cherry. That is awesome. So so a couple of things there. I knew that Michter's makes bourbon. I was not aware of the fact that they make a rye. So I will it have to look that lovely. up. Lovely. Yeah, nice yeah. rye. All right. Yeah, I've, really I've really been into rye lately. So I'll definitely have to pick that one up. Me too. Um, I like that it's not, you know, you don't get, I, I love a good bourbon, uh, no question, but the bourbons can run a little bit hotter and mm-hmm. a little sweeter. And for me, that the drier uh, character of the rye is often really nice, especially in the form of a Manhattan, because if you're going to be putting some sweet vermouth in there, it's nice to have the drier base and uh, it really stands up to the drink well. So even though it's mixed with a little bit of vermouth, you can really appreciate the rise. So I I love it. Exactly. No, that's exactly the reason that I kind of lean a little towards rye. I mean, I'm happy with a good bourbon too, but uh, definitely lean a little towards the rye for that that exact reason. So one other thing on your Manhattan, you said a frozen cherry. What kind of cherry is it? I usually just pick up some nice frozen Bing cherries from, uh, there's some good ones that, you know, Trader Joe's, uh, a lot of stores have them, but they're, I like them better than a lot of the jarred cherries. I've never been a huge Luxardo fan. You know, they're fun in some places, but they can be kind of cloyingly sweet. I'm not a huge fan of the texture. I appreciate them. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I, uh, my, my personal recipe, I really like the frozen dark cherry and it serves as a bit of an ice cube, you know, for a little while. Uh, sure. Yeah. Keep it Drink cold. on the cool side. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was going to mention the Luxardos because I know that a lot of places, I mean, the you just get a maraschino cherry, which is right. like uh, candy, right? Now, and, nowadays, it's kind of yeah. sad. And so somebody pointed me towards the Luxardos, and even though it's, I, I tend to not eat sugar, and so um, I don't 
myself eat them, but I make a few cocktails for my wife that have um, cherry garnish. And so I bought the Luxardos and she said, these are way better. Oh but, yeah. But Compared I'm, to a regular maraschino, it's yeah. it, it world's better. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I will definitely, uh, I will definitely pick up some frozen cherries and try that at some point. Try I, it out. Yeah. And they're not sweet. I mean, it really, it is a real cherry, you know, right, it's a, a pitted right. proper cherry. That's just in the frozen fruit section of, you know, good, uh, decent, grocery stores. And it's, I tell you, it's a really nice touch. Yeah, no, I'll give it a try. All right. Well, I'm going to join you in a drink tonight, but I actually don't have one poured because you need to help me pick out the drink that I'm going to have. Hey now. And to do that, you need to tell me because I looked online and I could not find a good answer. I probably was just not looking in the right place. I get it. But I don't know whether Oakland is a Scottish name, an (laughs) Irish name, a Croatian name, which actually popped up someplace, or yeah. something entirely different. So you need to tell me, and then I will pick the appropriate bottle. All right, this is a this is a good game. Well, um, not to uh, you know spoil the fun of it, but Oakland is not has no biological connection to me. Uh, without getting mired in boring personal stuff, my mom was married twice, and Oakland was the name of her other husband. And then she changed, even though I'm the younger one in the family, she changed my name to match my siblings and all that. It's a long story. But the bottom line is I have no blood connection to Oakland, even though it's been my name since I was a few months old. Now, with that said, the history of it is uh, Eastern European, Hungarian, and what was at the time, Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic. So your closest of what you mentioned would probably be Croatia. You know what? I think I might've gotten it wrong though, because now that you say that, it it may have actually been Czech that I saw. That's more likely. That's more likely, yeah. Okay, but you have no relation to it. Therefore, Therefore, instead of my Jameson or uh, my Jameson Irish or the Balvenie 14 year, I am going to go with my uh, Coval single barrel rye since you are having a drink that has rye in it. So I like that. That's a good connection. I see. All right. It is poured. So a rye that is distinctly not from Czechoslovakia. No, definitely not. There we go. Amazing how that happens. This is not a Czech Republic rye. (laughs) All right. Cheers, BJ. Cheers to you, sir. Thanks for having me. Sure. All right. So that, uh, I just got this recently, this Coval Rye. I, I like it. It's good. Cool. I haven't had it. It's a, it's a new one for me as well. Right on. All right. So you are not from the Czech Republic. You are not from Scotland. You're not from Ireland. Where are you from? I am from New York, born and raised. Really? So you are from the East Coast and now you're living on the West Coast. Uh-huh. How long have you been on the West Coast? A lot of us actor types do that crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How long? Uh, well, I started going back. I started as a kid actor, and I started going back and forth between New York and L.A. in 87. Uh, spent a goodly amount of time out here in L.A., that is. Uh, I would get jobs. I'd book jobs in New York that shot in L.A., um, and even though I wasn't a celeb or anything, that used to happen more often than it happens now, I'd say, in the industry. I mean, you could get, as you were building a bit of a reputation, you could land a guest star or a recurring, uh, get cast in New York, shoots in L.A. I think a lot, there's a lot more local hiring that happens now for budgetary considerations. But back then, you know, it was a bit, a bit more common, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. So I got a couple of those gigs, and then I'd extend them and stay longer. And while I was in L.A., I'd managed to get another gig, like a, a feature film that shot in the Mojave Desert and so on. And I'd extend my stay and, and stay a bit longer. And then I, uh, one of those periods, I wound up under contract with Universal Studios for about a year. Uh, so uh, they, I had to stay 
even though the show we were working on got canceled, I had to stay in LA uh, for the duration of the contract. So that was another opportunity to be here longer. I went back to New York uh, pretty full-time starting around, I guess, 90. Uh, didn't do too much back and forth to LA after that. A couple of press junkets. I'd done a big film around then, so I had to come out for like press and premieres and stuff. Uh, but other than that, that was, that was pretty much it. I was in New York. Um, career slowed down a touch. I was doing other things, making ends meet. Um, wound up uh, doing a Broadway show, uh, a couple of soaps during that period. And then after that, it was uh, management uh, told me, you know, look, most of your stuff has been TV and you're missing out on a ton of work now, the way the business has changed. You got to get back to LA and make the move. Uh, so that's when it was official. And I moved to LA full-time January, 1995. And it's so hard to believe because now I've passed that point in my life where I have lived in LA longer than I lived in New York. And that's kind of a weird feeling, but this yeah, is that's, that's quite a while ago. So you said you were yeah. a kid actor. How yeah. old were you when you started? Started at like 10. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Really? The, the child actor thing. Yeah. Big time. And, and yet you're not dead yet. I, amazingly. I, and I've never <laughs> held up a liquor store. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this rye was gifted to me, as I mentioned, by, uh, by Eric Martin. Yeah. All of the, uh, all of the booze in my household uh, has been paid for. Um, so yeah, no holding up liquor stores, no, uh, no, no crime. Uh, I never became a drug addict. All of the, the classic things I managed to avoid. So uh, it is, it is possible. It's possible. I mean, I still <laughs> pissed away a lot of money and you know, all of that, but, uh, but no, it was, uh, it was, it's, Pretty good, all things considered. Uh, zero regrets. I mean, I love how I had this kind of alternative childhood. I loved growing up in the business. It was it was fun for me. I mean, there were, my favorite times were being on set and working. So I was very happy to do it. I was the one who pushed to do it. I had the antithesis of a stage mother. Uh, my mom, if anything, was opposed to my doing it. You know, so she was always kind of in the background. Uh, so producers always loved her as I built more of a reputation. I think she did too because they didn't just like working with me. They liked the fact that, you know, my mom didn't get involved, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, it was kind of funny. I feel like I grew up in the industry. That's very cool that you had such a good experience. I mean, I, I make jokes about it, but, uh, it, it can be, uh, devastating. It's sketchy for yeah. sure. You know, weird yeah. stuff happens in this business as we know. Yeah. And, uh, it's not that I wasn't exposed to lots of weird stuff, but managed to, uh, Managed to avoid going down any dark paths myself, even yeah. though I saw others do uh, do so. No, that's great. That's great. So, has it been acting the whole time, or did you go to go to um, university? Did you um, do a, any a, a bit of time in LA, a bit of time at UCLA, and uh, uh, even a bit of time at LA City College? Uh, mostly, uh, that kind of informs some of my language stuff, which has become a big part of my life. But no, working all the time um, when some of those decisions came around, uh, I was never willing to take big breaks uh, from, uh, from the industry. So I've stayed working pretty consistently, even as I said, you know, there's some fill-in periods where things were slow, but I was never afraid of, uh, you know, manual labor if needs be, whatever it took to make <laughs> ends meet, I did it. You know, I was uh, always yeah. happy to be working, always been happier to be working than, than the alternative. But I've managed to work pretty steadily for what's over, over 30 years now. It's kind of weird. That's great. Uh, has it all been film and TV or did, have you done any theater? No, theater. Uh, as I mentioned, there was the, uh, the stint on Broadway. Also, one of my earliest uh, 
big breaks, I guess you could say. I mean, certainly one of the credits I'm most proud of, even though it came early, is I got to work for Joseph Papp and the New York Shakespeare Festival when uh, Joe was still around. Oh, wow. And um, uh, that's, you know, I mean, that's just being a part of history. So I'll, I'll never forget that. It was an amazing time. Uh, yeah, no kidding. You know, Christopher Walken was doing Coriolanus. Mandy Patinkin and Christopher Reeve were doing uh, Winter's Tale. I was doing Love's Labor's Lost with uh, Roma Downey and uh, Richard Libertini and uh, just so many other great, amazing talents. I mean, it was it was an amazing time. So talk about growing up in the business. That was just you know life changing. And uh, so yeah, yeah to no to kidding. that that's a, a theater credit I'm really proud of. And um, uh, I on Broadway I did Abe Lincoln in Illinois with uh, Sam Waterston. Uh, mm-hmm. Sam played my dad. Um, and uh, out here in L.A. I've done a number of things. I've worked for some cool theater companies like A Noise Within and Boston Court um, that have great reputations. Some cool experimental things, you know, more Shakespeare and uh, a few other things. Uh, But for the most part, I mean, in terms of amount, uh, certainly more in terms of film and TV. Mm. But nowadays, it's uh, the lion's share in a big, big way is VO. Yeah, yeah, no kidding, especially with all that experience. Um, So is theater something, I'm just kind of curious, is theater something that you still, at this point, pursue in any way? Yeah, I pursue is not a great word for it, uh, but when things come my way, you still keep I, your hand in. I absolutely do. Yeah, I always I'm always very interested. Um, and once in a while, it's been a couple of years, uh, but once in a while, it's sort of like an offer you can't refuse. And what's mm-hmm. funny is not in the classic sense because there's zero money in it, not for right. that reason, but something like, oh, I I mean that that's something that if I get to do that, that would be amazing. I mean, a good example is the the one I did. It was a world premiere a couple of years ago at the the theater at Boston court, a director I had worked with before. And, um, uh, he had reached out to me specifically for this, this project. And the character was, I mean, this kind of stuff I do in audiobooks. you know, it was, uh, I got to play on stage, many different characters, all doing these really extensive, intense monologues, like a, figures from history coming out of the the smoke and oh, you know, delivering these cool. intense monologues. It was really incredible. And, you know, one that I think is going to stay with me uh, uh, for the rest of my life was J. Robert Oppenheimer. And um, uh, it was just like, it's probably my favorite thing I ever got to do on stage. And that's what hooked me. I remember I was on a flight reading the play and, um, uh, and I, I, oh, I misspoke. It wasn't a world premiere. It was a West Coast premiere because I think they had workshopped it or done something in Texas, if I'm not mistaken, but this Mm -hmm. was its first sort of official staging, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And anyway, um, I was on a flight when I got to read it and it was written in this really interesting way, no punctuation, really fun thing. And I suddenly saw all this stuff I could sink my teeth into and it was exciting. You know, the prospect of doing it was exciting. And that's, that's why I took on the project. So it's about that kind of thing now. You know, if something grabs me and I get the opportunity, someone wants me to do it, um, that already, you know, is, is interesting. It's like, Hey, they must think I'm right for it. Or there's something in there that, you know, might click and then, uh, we'll see where it goes from there. But yeah, it's, I, I always want theater to continue to be a part of my life in in some capacity. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. That sounds fascinating. Robert Oppenheimer. I just, I, I can't imagine as, um, history unfolded, uh, mm. how that, how that was for him. Um, oh yeah, right. Exactly. And that all of that informed this this monologue. The monologue was intense. He's telling a story about this recurring dream that he has. And uh it just gets pretty wild. I mean, there's moments where the audience is kind of laughing awkwardly, 
but mm-hmm. he's kind of spilling his guts. I mean, just pouring his soul out and then it just gets a little bit more intense and then they have that uncomfortable shifting in their seats mm-hmm. when they start to realize it's, it's getting darker. Yeah. And then uh, it's, it, it was just, wow. Yeah, I, I just thinking about it now gives me chills. And I was the one who got to do it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, when you think of it that way, it's like, wow. You know, I, I get chills thinking about it from the, uh, from well, essentially from the audience's standpoint, not because I, you know, in the sense of because my performance was so amazing, not that. I just mean that the content gives me chills. And yeah. uh, the fact that I got to do that, uh, you know, I'll always remember that. And it was an obscure, relatively obscure production, but with a with a wonderful company. Yeah. And that that type of thing is what really it's what I love about theater is is the dark stuff where the audience does have a good reason to laugh much of the time. Oh, yeah. But yeah. that it's really dark. I, I was fortunate enough to be in a, a production of um, August Osage County. Great I, play. I love that play. Because, Tracy Letts. Yeah. yeah, because it is so dark and yeah. so awful and so funny. And so real. I yes, mean, there's that. Yes, it's also yes. that you know, the sardonic stuff, but just, it's a family and yep. who hasn't had the experience of darkness in your family? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's the kind of theater I love. That's uh that yeah. I, I wouldn't blame you if you kept that with you for the rest of your life. Cause that's, for sure. uh, that's really cool stuff. Yeah. So, uh, so you mentioned uh, voiceover. Uh, how did you get into voiceover? Well, it's always been part of my career in some capacity. When I was a kid, I was doing a lot of commercials, even even promos and things, um, you know, some stuff for Disney and whatever. So a lot of VO stuff early on, um, never in terms of long form or anything like that. Uh, It's always been there, um, you know, a little bit of video game stuff, a little bit of animation stuff along the way. Um, That's I guess cool. so. So you so you started acting young, and you started voice acting young. Very, yeah. I was doing voice acting within my first year in the business. Yeah. Wow, great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was just the two went hand in hand. I was I was very lucky with a lot of commercial work early in my career. That's that's what I was able to parlay into the theatrical stuff. I was doing so many on camera commercials in my first few years. I was on a bit of a hot streak. And the funny thing is, just. I mean, that's what, it's a business, right? That's what Mm -hmm. makes you attractive to agents. I was able to freelance among agents because I was making the money. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they want to be the first one to call and get you the audition and so on. That's when freelancing was a lot more common than now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, um, so that was great because my success in commercials sort of bought me that entree into theatrical work, um, meaning more than just stage, but the film and TV stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's how it started, and the voiceover commercials, etc., went hand in hand with uh, with the on camera commercials, etc. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it wasn't until uh, well, actually, here's here's an interesting sort of uh, segue for you. Uh, it was a stage production I did in L.A. We were just talking about all this stuff. I was doing a production of um, Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors, and the 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 setup, if you will, the conceit of the show is that it was a vaudeville troupe or a burlesque troupe doing comedy of errors. Mm, So everyone in the production had a character within the troupe who was then playing a character or characters in comedy of errors. Mm -hmm. You with me? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I was the ethnic comic in the troupe. So I was like the man of a thousand voices, if you will, or a thousand accents. Uh. So then in the production, I spoke seven different languages and played a bunch of different characters and what have you. Like Angelo was an Italian, Dr. Pinch was a German, et cetera, et cetera. So um, Deborah and Bob Dion of audiobook fame, 
the legendary. We lost Bob, of course, but before we did, Bob became a really close friend. And uh, of course, I'm still close with Deb. Mm -hmm. Uh, It all started because of that production. And um, they were there. Uh, My my dear friend, Abby Creighton, who is uh, also a great, great narrator, she was in the show. And uh, she's like, you've got to meet these people because, you know, you should be doing audiobooks. And I was always interested in audiobooks anyway. Um, so this is going back, uh, you know, quite a few years. But she connected me with them. I went into audition. Uh, and next thing I knew, you know, the uh, things got busy and I was doing audiobooks all the time. And that wound up becoming like the biggest part of my career. So I'm sure that that wasn't when you were 11. When was it that you no, were in, no, this, no. Uh, in this production? And <laughs> that it, was, uh, I, I don't remember what year. It's got to be, I want to say like maybe seven-ish years ago, somewhere around there. Like, okay, like so it wasn't 2012, something like that. It wasn't super long ago that you got into audiobooks. No, no, not super long ago at all. No, I've just been so busy that even in that relatively short time, I'm up around 300 or so. Yeah, no, I saw that on on Audible. I'm, I imagine that you might have a, uh, a pseudonym or two. I don't really use a pseudonym, no, but I do. Uh, I've done a number that are uncredited that sort of thing. Uh, um, so it, there's, yeah. there's others out there. There's also, you know, beyond audible, other publishers, some things that are, mm-hmm. you know, certain places that don't all uh, show up on audible, but yeah, yeah, it's, uh, that's all been in that, that period of time. Well, I, so that's great to find out where you, um, got in touch with, um, with Dion audio. And I know that you are, uh, or you were associated with them in terms of the, um, I can't remember the name of the Academy or the Dion Institute Institute. Institute. Yeah, no, still, still am. Yeah. I co-founded the Institute with, um, with Deb and we did that in Bob's honor. You know, it was, Mm -hmm. uh, not to be like some big moneymaker, but one of his, um, and for those who don't know, we lost Bob to ALS. Mm -hmm. So, uh, a couple of things that, um, Deb and I did, uh, one is he really wanted to, he was, he believed so much in the quality of the work and really, having that legacy and standing for great quality audiobook productions and so on and teaching people how to do it well. Cause he was also a great audiobook director, uh, mm-hmm. in addition to being one of the most legendary audiobook producers in the business. Uh, so it was one of his dreams to create an environment for people to learn how to do it well. Uh, so we started the Institute in his honor. And, uh, the other thing is we started being very active over the last few years with the, uh, ALS association. So, uh, mm-hmm. we've uh, done a lot of uh, charity work with them. Uh, so, uh, that was all kind of, you know, for Bob. Um, but the, uh, the Institute has really become kind of amazing. I mean, we've had so many students now come through the classes and go on to, to these award-winning narrations and their introduction to audiobooks. The possibility of recording audiobooks was, you know, a weekend intensive that I taught. And next mm-hmm. thing I know, they've got an earphones from audiophile or they're nominated for an audience. and it's, uh, it is incredibly gratifying, I have to say. I was going to say, that's got to be really nice. Yeah, um, yeah. And and speaking of Bob as a director, I've seen a couple of videos uh, of, uh, I, I don't remember if it was on YouTube or if it was on their website or someplace, but I would, I would hear him um, answering questions from people. And I just thought, yeah, this guy gets it. Oh, yeah. He yeah. really gets, gets the whole uh, acting, directing thing. Yeah. Yeah, and he understood specifically audiobooks, I think, above all else. And uh, there's no question he uh, he got it. And he was also just a delight, you know. I mean, just a, a genuinely sweet guy. One of those people, you you know, everyone says, nicest guy I ever met. And they really mean it, you know. Yeah, and uh, I never got a chance to meet him, but I've met Deb, and I would say the, thing, the same thing about Deb. Yeah, yeah, she's a sweetheart. 
Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry for you that you didn't get to meet Bob. And it's funny. I have so many good friends in this industry now and the years tick by and you don't realize, you know, here's a dear friend that I've known for five years, you know, or four years or what have you, when they first kind of came to LA or first got into audiobooks, And it's gotten to that point where that isn't quite long enough to have known Bob. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to even, it's weird, you know, to have these close people in my life and realize you never met Bob. How's that even possible? You never yeah. got to know Bob. And, um, and it's, it's sad because, uh, you know, we, we really lost something, but even conversations like this, I think, uh, you know, honor his legacy because, uh, he was incredibly special. And as long as we, uh, we keep remembering his impact on all of our lives and this industry, um, uh, then I think, you know, we, uh, we, do him a, a certain a certain justice. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. So, uh, so you mentioned you've done several hundred audiobooks. Do you have a uh, any kind of a specialty or a or a niche? I know that the titles that I saw kind of ran the gamut, as far as yeah. I can tell. But uh, is there anything that you kind of prefer, or that you kind of or uh, are, are cast for more often, or is it just kind of like, hey, I get to tell a story? <laughs> well, in a funny sort of way, it's all of those things. Um, in terms of what I prefer, my favorite thing to do is uh, is first person, uh, and I'm I do like doing YA. I don't do a ton of it, but first person YA. You know, I uh, I like the general structure, the storytelling, the you know the coming of age, the characters that get involved. Uh, so that's fun. I love sci-fi and fantasy because I get to do lots of fun. Uh, you know character stuff. And I guess that's the better answer to your question is in terms of specialties. I'm known, as you had mentioned earlier, um, I specialize in accents and characters. Um, and I guess because of my proficiency with uh, languages and all that kind of stuff, I may have built a little bit of a reputation of, you know, if it's challenging or difficult, give it to PJ. Um, and <laughs> I don't, I don't mind that, you know, because the research can be fun. And, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's totally okay. And I also so deeply appreciate working regularly as an actor that I can't underscore that enough. So even though I'll say, you know, joking around over drinks, you know, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a hard one. Give it to PJ. Uh, that really is tongue in cheek because I'm so grateful that I have all these producers and publishers and casting directors that I've built relationships with over the years that trust me with all of these different genres, you know? So in a weird sort of way, um, it, it, here, it, when we were at APAC, I was uh, moderating a panel last year. I think you were there. And uh, Melissa Riley Ellard, who's also a friend, she's uh, from Scholastic and Weston Woods. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. She was on the panel and she made this comment. I was moderating, so it's totally unsolicited, but it stuck with me. We got into a little chat about branding. And even though I'm known as, you know, accent and character voice guy or what have you, she said, uh, using me as an example, she's like, well, I look at PJ and his brand to me is versatility. And I thought about that. I said, well, that's, it, you know, it's really interesting, but I got why she said it, you know, and she elaborated a bit, but the idea was that it's, I, I kind of do it all. And that's very, that's a tricky thing in terms of a brand, right? From a marketing standpoint, that's not so good because um, you don't want to be the jack of all trades, master of none. You want right. to be what the casting director, you know, needs for the certain project and you specialize in that. Mm -hmm. uh, but so far, you know, having that, the language, the accent, the character stuff uh, as a kind of mainstay, but also a certain reliability and trustworthiness when it comes to 
they're they're going to be happy with what I deliver, uh, regardless if they're in a bit of a pinch or what have you. Um, that's nice. I'm you know I'm I'm grateful to have that. And again, you know the the steady work as a regular paid under a union contract working actor virtually every day that I want to be is a luxury I will never take for granted. Yeah, no kidding. That's that's tough. Um, um, so how do you get to that point? Just asking for a friend. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, um, yeah. So, so get back to the accents and the dialect. So aside from that Shakespeare production where you got to do all kinds of stuff and, and that was where, um, um, Dion saw you, um, how is it that you are an expert on dialects and accents? There's, there's a certain built in, you know, factory installed thing. Um, that, uh, I'm just grateful for having, uh, it's, you know, a good ear, good mimicry skills, some of the stuff that's harder to teach and you're lucky if you've got it, uh, from the get go. Mm-hmm. And I say that because I was doing this stuff when I was a kid before it involved any sort of formal training. And then as I got more serious about it, um, you know, I run into this a lot, you know, uh, one of the coaching things I have now, you know, I'm working with some folks who have this great natural talent, but never thought about the subtlety, the the textbooky stuff, some of the technical details that separate uh, passable from really authentic, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. And and I I had to make that journey myself, you know, and uh, get all the, the book smarts to accompany the natural uh, instincts. Um, so that happened over a series of stuff. Some of it was university stuff. Some of it was working with uh, another dialect uh, coach and coaching company. Uh, so I, you know, learned a lot of the, um, you know, teaching methods, if you will, but also more than that, it was the groundwork for developing my own and realizing that coming at it from the standpoint of an experienced actor, I could speak that language and realize what would resonate, what would work coming up with methods for things that I started to realize as years went even further by of doing this stuff, um, in a specialized way, thinking about how a lot of coaches might avoid, that's unfair to put it that way, might not cover for whatever reasons, time constraints and whatnot, because you might only be working with an actor for 60 minutes for audition prep. Uh, people will often skip over things like placement. And I started to realize, you know, that's not okay. And, and why do they do that? Well, because it's hard and it's, it's very complicated to learn out of a textbook or to teach out of a textbook or to think about in overly technical ways like holding your lips like this and your tongue like that and your jaw like this and feeling Mm. vibrations here, there and everywhere. You still kind of have to cover that stuff, but it's very complicated. So I started developing a really simplified method where I was getting actors to use their natural mimicry skills to understand what was going on with placement. Use some of the skills you already have. You know, I do this in group classes a lot. Um, Just got back from VO Atlanta and I was doing a workshop on uh, character voice toolbox and being your own dialect coach. Um, you know, which, uh, which went great. I mean, we had so, so much fun with it, but, you know, getting the participants to realize that they're already doing this in such a big way. How often have you watched a Monty Python film and then recited the lines to friends over drinks? Yeah. How many yeah. people have mimicked, you know, classic accented lines from, from comedies or, you know, characters from TV and so on. We do it all the time as actors. And mm-hmm. if you start to tap into what it is you're actually doing, you can leapfrog some of those technical complications with placement and get to where you need to be in such a short amount of time that it really starts to complement the phonetic rules that you can learn from a dialect coach, but the phonetics alone won't quite get you there. 
you know, you need that other missing component and tapping into things like that, you know, to bring it back to your, your question, long way to walk a dog. But the idea is I started to realize that it was a combination of many things and I could speak that language and I could teach it well. And I never really ever, I mean, to this day, I've never marketed my coaching, but it, uh, it became, you know, it's, become a big part of my life, you know, on a referral basis, you know, people come to me all the time. And again, it's that not to get corny, but it really is. It's that gratifying thing. You know, you're, you're giving back in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I got to learn stuff and I've got to gotten to build a career on things, uh, that I've developed and learned. And if that can help others and make them happy and make them successful, uh, I get to sleep better at night. So, uh, so why not? You know, it's, uh, it's really fun to do. No, that sounds great. And, and the whole, your whole story about how you uh, kind of got to be an expert in accents and dialects. It's great because it's clear that it's not because, well, I was taught 15 languages before I was 10 years old. That's right. It's, it's a matter of recognizing a, an inherent talent that you have, but not resting on the fact that that exists and instead putting the work in to actually make it blossom. Well, that's, that's about the nicest thing you could say about it. I appreciate that. That's, yeah. Uh, I, 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 and, and I think that's really important that people should, should really kind of look and see what, what do I have a natural talent for? I know that for me, you know, talking about languages, I learned when I was in college that I do kind of have a knack for languages. I, I didn't realize it earlier, but it was true earlier when I learned Spanish in high school. And then in college, I wasn't really interested in Spanish or French or you know, the basics that, that people take. And so I thought, well, I'll do something different. Okay. I'll, uh, let's see, there's a uh, Mandarin or Russian, or, you know what, I think I'm going to take Russian. Hmm. And I, and I found it relatively easy. And there were people in my class who were struggling so hard because it's a very different language structure. Than Absolutely. Cases huh? and the tenses and all this other stuff. And, um, and so I found, you know, and I realized at that point, well, this comes kind of easy to me. Later in life, I got into computer programming and I realized that, you know, it's, it's another language. It's another way of communicating and it kind of comes easy to me. So, so it was good to kind of recognize that. But then if you just kind of sit back and go, oh, that's easy for me. And then you never do any work on it. uh, You really don't get much farther. So I think that's a, that's a great lesson. uh, Your story about the fact that you recognize the talent that you have, which I think everybody has certain talents. It's just a matter of tapping in and figuring out what they are and then working to, you know, bring those forward. Yeah, develop them and then and then what more you can do with them. You know, yeah. there is the uh, you know, there's the teaching side of things. If you if you lean that way, if you're good at that, you know, and that's the other interesting lesson, you know, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you're going to be good at teaching it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's like that's a separate sort of uh, skill unto itself. And Absolutely. and that was another bit of realization, you know, coming to that place eventually after decades of doing stuff that I realized I could, you know, start to teach it. And, um, and then how that took on a bit of a life of its own and, you know, started to go very well and people were happy and their lives were being changed uh, for the positive that in and of itself was another level of what you're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. recognizing, honing, developing, learning more, and then sharing that knowledge. Uh, and then I guess the level after that, sharing it well, you know, sharing it in a useful way that, uh, that really starts to change things for folks. 
um, yeah, it's it's kind of kind of cool. But like everything we've talked about thus far, uh, it's something I'm you know very appreciative of. It's uh, you know it's a it's a nice nice spot to be in. You know, yeah, yeah. makes you feel good. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of coaches. Um, not not the more overall thing, but the fact that you know. I'm teaching somebody and they have that aha moment and it's so gratifying. It's not, you know, of course they're doing this as a business and they're making money. People are are paying them for their expertise and that's all fine, but it's, it's different than the money. It's, right. it's just this, this great thing to actually experience somebody's aha moment and get better. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so, what it's, that's what really what it's all about. Yeah. So, uh, in, in regard to your, your accent dialect work and languages and all that, I understand that you, uh, you have a new job in addition to everything that you've been doing. Tell me about uh, that. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. I was there. I, I know this isn't uh, live, but the day that we're, uh, we're doing this interview, I actually just came from there. In fact, yeah. um, super, super fun gig. I'm, uh, I'm coaching the, uh, the wizards and witches over at Hogwarts. I'm the uh, official dialect coach for uh, Universal Studios Hollywood and the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. That's fantastic. So, uh, it is. Uh, it's a pretty fun gig. In fact, uh, um, yeah. Just today, I was over there, and uh, you know, great, great group of people, and just a fun place to be. You know. So, so what? What is it? Was today your first day there? No, no, no. I've oh, uh, okay. I've been down a bit. I've been involved in a bit of the casting. Uh, uh, with them, you know, some recent casting and, you know, a bunch of uh, uh, evaluations now with uh, existing cast and so on and getting to know everybody and, and so on and developing the program. So, uh, yeah, it started pretty recently, but uh, but today wasn't the first. OK, so so aside from the casting portion as an ongoing thing, what is it that you're going to be doing? I, I'm not familiar with the type of um I'm not familiar with the wizarding, wizarding world. I haven't been there. I've seen all the movies, read all the books, and, and sure. I love it. It's a great story. And I know that there are lots of different accents, um, but I don't know the specifics in terms of the the Universal Studios thing. So, um, I'm sorry, Universal. Is that right? Universal, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Universal yeah. The so, films are uh, Warner Brothers, but uh, Universal has the um, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in the parks in Orlando and L.A. Maybe that's why for a second there I thought, wait a minute, do I have this right? <laughs> so um, so I'm not familiar with, with that specific attraction. So as an ongoing thing, what is it that you're going to be doing? Is it because of personnel changes and you would have to teach people, new people things, or just continue working with existing cast members? Or what, It's what kind of that? a little bit of all of that. You know, I mean, it's uh, without going into the, uh, the boring details of it. But it's just a, a bit of getting everybody who's currently there up to speed, if you will, um, and many of them already are, of course, um, mm -hmm. but just helping out with that, you know, providing some tools uh, to uh, to help them out. And then on an ongoing basis, you know, some refreshers and whatnot, just an additional resource for the actors because this skill set is really an integral part of the roles they play in the uh, in the world. Uh, and then, you know, additional stuff for new hires, as you mentioned, of course, as new people come into the cast, it's a pretty massive cast. So uh, when changes occur, you know, new people come in, they go through a bit of a training program, this becomes part of that training program, and so on and so forth. 
Well, that's that is very cool. I, I hope to hit that at some point someday because I am a, a huge fan of the stories. I've read oh, the, yeah. the books. I don't know how many times now, and um, and they just since HBO just got all the movies. Uh, I think about three, four, six months ago, something like that. We just went through them all in in nice. the past, in the past few weeks. So um, so you get to see everybody grow up a little faster than than they actually did. <laughs> than waiting uh, a year for the next one to come exactly, out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I. But I yeah, the they're amazing. Yeah, so yeah, I, I do too. I, I'm such a huge fan, and uh, uh, yeah, it's it's funny actually. You want a a, a little sort of tie into audiobooks with Harry Potter? Sure, yeah. Little uh, small anecdote for you. Remember, I mentioned I went in and had that audition for Dion mm-hmm. when they saw me in the uh, the show and whatnot. Well, I did something that nowadays, when I'm teaching classes, I said to everyone, I did exactly what you should never do. <laughs> I chose a selection from one of the most iconic audiobook recordings <laughs> of all time, and I did a piece from one of the Harry Potter books. That's now, awesome. Yeah, it, which you should <laughs> never do. I mean, you got right. Stephen Fry, you got Jim Dale. What the hell was I thinking? Yeah. But, but <laughs> it very, very, very fortunately worked out in my favor. But as I say, I mean, I would never recommend this to anybody. Yeah. You know, it really is like you're picking something iconic that was done so extraordinarily well, kind of like how the judges used to give people a hard time for singing a Whitney Houston song on American Idol. It's like, mm. what are you thinking? You know, yeah. you're not going to make it better. But the cool thing was, um, uh, if you've ever had the chance to meet Jorge over at uh, at Dion, and if you don't, you know, you, you will when you're in town. Uh, such a great guy. Um, this is when he was engineering, right? You know, going uh-huh. back a number of years and he was there and I was doing the piece and, um, he cuts in for a second and he tells me, okay, could, could you like stop for one minute? I'll be right back. And, uh, I was like, sure. And I, you know, I could tell it was going well. I wasn't worried that it was like some catastrophe or something, but, um, I'm thinking, well, I'm kind of nailing this. I, I think it's going okay. I mean, I feel pretty good about it. And, uh, he comes back with Bob and <laughs> I found out much later that the conversation that took place behind the scenes was Jorge going to Bob and saying, Bob, you've got to hear this guy. That's awesome. And, and that was kind of how it started. So I totally, totally lucked out because imagine if, you know, Jorge was having a bad day or who knows what. He's just like, I can't believe this moron came in and he's doing Harry Potter. You know, okay, wrap it up, buddy. Go home. Like, thank you. Know, you. Get a life. Yeah. Thank you very much. See ya. Yeah. So I also owe Jorge for, uh, you know, that moment of going and getting Bob and being excited about what I was doing because, you know, that moment could have gone very differently. And who knows? Life, life would have been... Uh, unrecognizable compared yeah. to what it currently is. So, no, that's, yeah. that, that's great though. I know that there are a lot of, um, there's an exception to every rule. And I know that that is a rule. You don't do something that is so well known. It's, it's like commercials. Um, sure. you know, you don't, you don't put something on your commercial VO demo where you are, I realize that he's not doing it anymore, but you are the classic Geico gecko. Right? Sure. Right. Exactly. So, so you don't do things very specific um, that people are going to recognize and go, but that wasn't you. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> this is clearly canned. This is for the purposes of an audition. You right. didn't actually do the thing. Right. You know? And but, what's more, you didn't even do it as well as the way it was done. You know? Right. Right. But it's great to hear that there's an exception to every rule. So every once in a while, you know, look for those exceptions. Just don't assume that you have it unless right. uh, unless there's a good reason to. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's great. A little bit so, of a little bit of luck involved in my case there. It wasn't that I knew the rules so well that I could intentionally break them. Uh, I 
just, I think I got a bit lucky and have, to have a good day. That's all. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. So for the uh, narration work that you do now, do you, where do you record? Do you record only in studios? Do you record at home? Uh, it's, it's both. Yeah. yeah, it's a combination. I mean, fortunately, I'm in LA. So, uh, so we're in one of the markets where we have professional studios like, you know, Penguin Random House has a, a bunch of studios out here. So when I work for PRH, I go in. Um, when I work for a publisher that's using Dion Audio as a uh, production company, I go in. Um, those are fewer and farther between these days. The vast majority of what I do is at home mm-hmm. in the booth that I'm currently sitting in talking to you. Yeah, nice. There we are. Uh, sounds good. Sounds good on this end. Well, that's cool. Considering we're using like, uh, you know, an online uh, uh, phone chatty software. That's yeah. kind of cool. <laughs> Not made to be amazing, but hey. No, but but it works. Um, so that's great. What about uh, what about anything that you're that you wouldn't record? Is there anything that you've turned down for specific reasons or that you would? Yes. Turn down? No, yeah. absolutely. I mean, it's uh, definitely there's stuff I've turned down. But for me, it's not. I mean, I don't do like really over the top erotica, for example, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but I've done plenty of romance and I don't I don't mind it in the slightest. I enjoy it. I think, you know, some of the stories are great and uh, uh, and I have no problem with any of the, you know, graphic stuff that that's not the issue. Um, but, you know, going into full on erotica or, you know, when it gets a little bit on the heavier side, I don't really do much of that. I guess a couple that would might be categorized that way, but that's not something I really pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing I, I would say I won't do though, is if the, um, if something takes something very bad, something we accept in society as bad and glorifies it in a way that makes it out to be good. If mm-hmm. you know what I mean, oh, for yeah. example, I mean, I've got no problem, you know, playing Hitler in a movie, but I wouldn't do a book that says Hitler was awesome. Wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's oh, a yeah. difference between the two. So uh, that's that's the line for me is simply, you know, it's it's and it's not even a question of, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of all opinions being valid. But there is there are lines that society decides something's not OK. You know, mm-hmm. rape is not OK. And we've all accepted as a society rape is not OK. So it's not a question of your opinion is valid if you say no rape is awesome. So it, you know, there's, there are, those are the lines for me. You know, we accepted that something is inherently bad or evil or whatever kind of, uh, you know, adjectives you want to put onto it. If we've accepted that, then doing something that takes that and makes it positive, even in fiction, that's mm-hmm. the line for me. You know, if, uh, if rape is the titillation it's not that the bad guy committed one and it's the cop story where they're trying to find the rapist. That's obviously a non-issue. That's called a thriller. Right. But if, uh, if it's a, a sex book that is promoting you know, rape as a positive, those are the lines for me. And obviously that could apply to many different things. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't imagine that's come up very often, though. No, but you'd be surprised that that stuff is out there. You know, it does it it does exist. And especially, I mean, you don't see that from major publishers, obviously, but in the independent world, which is a big part of our industry as well, uh, that stuff exists. And I guess I say that more, not like I'm dealing with this on a regular basis. It hardly ever happens for me. But a lot of my students, people I work with, I'm teaching classes, questions like this come up a lot. So it's, I know you're asking me from my experience, but just in terms of my opinion on that out there in the world, that's kind of how I feel about it because I get asked that question by students. And if they're doing most of their work through uh, say ACX, for example, you know, which is an independent platform for anyone who 
might be listening who doesn't know, um, mm-hmm. you've got millions and millions. If you look at Amazon, I think the, the number is something uh, like 7 million independently published books now. Mm-hmm. That's an incomprehensible number. Yeah. And it's not screened in any sort, uh, sort of quality control kind of terms, right? Yep. So uh, anything can be out there. Yep. And people come across that stuff because when they find a, a platform where they can turn it into an audiobook relatively simply, they want a narrator to do it. And you as the narrator have to be careful what you say yes to. Yeah. Yeah, no. Understood. Uh, so speaking of students, so you do coaching and you said that you don't really actively market it, but you've kind of become known as the go-to guy for, especially for accents and dialects. I, I assume that some of your coaching is, is just sort of general audiobook coaching as well. Yeah. Um, how, how do you approach coaching? What, what's your, uh, what's your take? Is it always based on specific needs of the student or do you have any kind of a curriculum or, um, or how, how do you go about it? Oh, interesting question. Um, I guess, uh, it's both really. I mean, I, I do have a specific curriculum for programs I've designed that I teach. Like I mentioned the, uh, the workshop I just did at uh, VO Atlanta was a uh, character voice toolbox is half the program. And the other half is how to be your own dialect coach. And, um, again, that's the, you know, the theme here is, is teach them how to fish. Don't give them the fish because Mm -hmm. my goal, I guess one overriding thing, um, is I want you to need me as little as possible. You know, I, uh, I do not want to be your chiropractor that, you know, makes you feel better for a few minutes and requires you to come back every three days or a week (laughs) indefinitely, you know, uh, that's, um, uh, and not to be unfair to chiropractors. Um, but you get my point and and it's, it's just, uh, that is not what I'm looking for in my coaching at all. I want to help people and I want them to move on and I want them to be able to do it on their own. So I really, really, really want you to be done with me, uh, is the idea, you know, get what you need and here it is now here's how you do it for yourself in the future. It's a hard thing to do in the dialect coaching world, but I did design that program for that purpose, especially, by the way, for audiobook narrators, because we can have a book where you have to do eight or a dozen or 20 different accented characters or more. And if you have that many different accents in a book and you come to me for a one-hour session to learn each of them, I mean, yeah, that information stays with you for your career, but I'm also, you're going to be paying me more than you make on that entire production. That is a completely impractical thing. What's more, you can't, you know, learn from scratch that many in a confident sort of way in such a short period of time anyway. You know, 12 sessions in uh, a few days on all these different things, absurdly impractical, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea is uh, giving you this sort of set of tools where you can go out and find the answers and what's more, as audiobook narrators, the listener is in on the conceit. They know we're one storyteller. You know, I always say it's, it's very fun and it's a nice ego stroke when someone, you know, puts a comment or sends you an email and says, dude, I thought this was a multicast. I, I was looking for the other names and I can't believe this was one guy doing the, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. That is a nice ego stroke. But let's be clear, that's not what we're going for. We're the storyteller and they're going along for the ride and we're not really trying to make it sound like we stepped out of the booth and, you know, the Russian guy or the German guy stepped in to do the dialogue. Mm -hmm. So the point being that subtle touches is kind of all you need as long as you commit to the honesty of who that character is as a human, which brings me to the second, you know, part in my answer to your question in terms of a, uh, uh, an approach 
even though I specialize in the character and accent stuff, I always try to make it clear to everyone and that, you know, I struggle with this too. I teach from the trenches, not high on the mountain. You know, I, I might be good at teaching it, but know that I'm working on this stuff for myself every single day with every book that I do. It's not that I've mastered all of this and you come to me for the great holy wisdom. You know, these are struggles that we all deal with, and these are kind of ways to, to deal with them and address them, right? Mm-hmm. But with that said, um, they're in on it. And because of that, we can do subtle touches as long as we're committed to who these characters are as real human beings. I think that's essential. You know, it's not a voice. Um, we get into, you know, traps sometimes where someone says, oh, yeah, I do, I do my, my Russian girl or my German guy. Okay, well, in the next book, when the German guy shows up, is it the same person? Is it the same human being? No. So that voice, if you think of it as this disembodied voice, that's not a human. That's not an individual. Tapping right. into who they are as characters, I think, is that, you know, at least one of the many secrets separating caricature from character. And, yeah. um, you know, that's one of the things, at least in the world of accents and, and characters, that uh, I like to focus on. And, you know, there's a number of other things, too, generally, but... Uh, I, I guess that kind of answers your question. Yeah, no, it definitely does. Um, sounds great. So, so you have specific things that you tend to coach on and, um, and you also kind of tailor it to what people need. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if someone's coming to me for, you know, a one hour private coaching, it's very much about what they need. If someone's coming for a weekend intensive, like, uh, you know, audiobook introductory in- intensive or intermediate intensive or so on, or, um, you know, the, the POV masterclass I just taught, you know, playing perspective and honoring the author's intent, things like that. Those are programs I've designed that, you know, people come to to learn about X. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're coming to me for a private coaching, of course, it's, it's very much customized toward what you need, a particular yeah. accent or help with your audiobook career and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So aside from the fact that you really have to um, make the character real, uh, if I can summarize a lot of a lot of the way you described, um, you know, not just the German guy, but right. this this real character. Um, what are the words of wisdom do you have for aspiring narrators out there? <laughs> wow. Um, I well, mean, I'm sure I'm sure that, that that that's an answer that could take five hours. But you know, just if you had uh, yeah. a couple, couple of well, bullet points that you could actually offer, you know, some of the people out there. What's I'll try and give important? you exactly that. I'll try and give you a couple of bullet points. Number one, I say this all the time, and I think uh, you know people quote me on this. Uh, I think if you want the one sort of catch-all secret to uh, what we do in terms of getting into these characters, playing them honestly, um, audiobook narration in general, but it also applies to so much other creative stuff, comes down to three words. Commit, don't comment. Um, Mm -hmm. That's something I try to live by. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, it's playing these characters honestly, honoring the author's intent. If you're doing romance, you know, how do you do the sex scenes? I mean, all these questions that come up uh, throughout the industry, it's almost like it doesn't matter which one it is. Commit, don't comment, I think pretty much gets you there. You've got to commit to it. You know, dive in. Uh, really just connect honestly to what's going on. Commentary, for those who don't know, is kind of like that acting school term is, you know, when you're for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, when you're outside of it, when you're kind of doing that wink, wink, nudge, nudge, when you're uncomfortable with committing. Mm -hmm. To me, it's the opposite of committing when it comes to creative work. You know, you're commenting, you're being commenty, 
uh, as is sometimes said, you know, don't mm-hmm. be commenty, you know, be in it. Uh, so that to me really, really, really covers a lot. Um, I've, I've heard that phrase before. It may have been last year at uh, Johnny Heller's Splendiferous Workshop. Since you I, were, I'm sure I said it there. Yeah. It may have yeah. been there. I'm sure I said it there. Yeah. I mean, it's anytime I'm in that kind of setting, you know, at Johnny Heller's thing, we've got, you know, a couple of hundred people there and we're doing our thing all day. Um, I did Johnny's thing, I think, three years in a row. And I don't think there was a single year I didn't say it, at least at some point. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a mantra, you know, I mean, it mm-hmm. really, it's a, it's a catch all for me and works. So anyway, that was a lot of words to say that three words gets it done. Mm-hmm. Um, so stick with those three. Uh, bullet point number two, I like to say, infuse everything you do creatively with energy. And part two of that point is understand very clearly that there is a difference between energy and size. So when we talk about bringing more energy to something, it's not you're going to go Jerry Lewis lady over the top. You know, that's, that's not the idea. It's that size, right? It's not about being over the top or huge. Mm-hmm. Energy is kind of what I'm doing right now, even though I'm a full Manhattan into the program here. Um, it's, it's when, you know, you can lean in and I can be talking to a, to a crowd and we're like an hour four of some sort of program or maybe Johnny's thing. I've done this late in the afternoon at Johnny's thing. And you lean in and you actually get quieter and you start to talk about the magic move. You know, that one thing, the one secret that I want you to be able to tap into to do this stuff well or do anything creatively, to do it incredibly well, to tap into this one sort of magic thing. And I've been talking now about this point for probably 30 seconds or more, and I've still yet to make a point, right? You Mm -hmm. go in circles and circles and circles, but the point is you have everyone's rapt attention. Mm -hmm. They really want to know what comes next. And you don't have to get loud or big for that, but you have to be present. You have to infuse it with energy. And that to me is one of the great secrets, not only to audiobook narration, but I think it's the secret behind screen presence, the secret behind stage presence. All of that kind of stuff. When you see Robert De Niro in Goodfellas at the bar and Cream's Sunshine of Your Love starts playing and he's holding a bucket glass of scotch to bring it back to the cocktail. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, the, the music comes up and you realize in that moment, even though there's no dialogue, that he just decided to whack Maury, you know, and it's all in the eyes. And De Niro has said, I guess in interviews, you know, repeatedly that people are always projecting all this stuff onto me when I'm, you know, there's no dialogue. And he says, I'm not thinking about anything, but they think about all these things I'm thinking about. And, you know, and that's exactly right. You know, you look and all of a sudden you're projecting, there's so much going on. And even though he's saying there's nothing going on, I say what is going on is he's engaged. Mm -hmm. He has infused that moment with energy and you can't take your eyes off of it. And I think it's the same thing with narration, right? You can't take your ears off of it. You want to know what comes next. It might be the driest nonfiction academic thing. You might be in the erudite academic professorial mode. But if you're passionate about it, it doesn't have to be big and over the top. You're interested. You're infusing it with energy. And that energy connects people to you. And even though we record at a different time than people listen, I have this belief that that stuff's all reciprocal too. You put the positive energy into something and you get it back. Yeah. 
That's great. Uh, that that's great advice. I really have to go watch Goodfellas again now. <laughs> one, of, one of my all time favorite movies. I will take any excuse to watch that movie. Uh, now you have one. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, great stuff. Well, this is great, PJ. I really appreciate you coming into the Speakeasy, sharing a drink with me. I certainly loved my uh, Coval. Uh, let me let me get the name right here. This is a uh, Coval single barrel whiskey rye. I, I have no idea what the mash bill is. I don't know how high it is in terms of a uh, rye percentage, but it's a good rye. So I yeah. would recommend it. And I will uh, definitely try the uh, triple bitter action the next time I make a Manhattan. Triple I, bitters I've, Manhattan. Yeah. I've got a few, stuff. although I have to say I'm not a huge fan of Peychaud's bitters. So is that uh, right? Yeah, are you so, not, are you a fan of the Sazerac by any chance? I'm not. And, oh, and what a shame. That's the reason. Oh, <laughs> I'm it's uh, it's the whole anise black licorice thing. I just oof, not yeah. Not well, me. the Peixo doesn't really have the anise, but that's the um the absinthe rinse in the glass that gives it the anise. That, that's true. Yeah. That's that's the anise. But there's something yeah. about the Peixos too. I I don't remember what it was now. You're right. Yeah. That's that's the um that's the absinthe. Well, uh, you you'd make the connection though because if you associate it with the Sazerac and you think about that, then when you taste the Peixo by itself, you're gonna have that same sort of feeling but, of. But there's this is that drink I don't like. Yeah, but there's something else in that particular bitters that. That, that I've had and I and I don't remember what it was now. Now I got to go open my bottle of patient bitters. <laughs> um, but I do have I do have something called figgy pudding bitters that I've Ooh. used in a Manhattan, and it makes a great Christmas Manhattan. I'm not surprised. So, that yeah, name like that. Yeah, yeah. So if you look look up figgy pudding bitters, you can order them. It's it's made by a local place here in Arizona, but I think they ship and cool. um, and so it makes a great Christmas or Thanksgiving Manhattan. But in the meantime, I am going to um, I'm going to try to get some other bitters and do a triple bitter Manhattan. My wife Make actually sure orange is one. You you need the orange. Orange. All right. So yeah. my my wife actually for Christmas this past year got me a book on do it yourself bitters. Nice. And uh, and I'm looking forward to making quite a variety of, of different types of bitters. Uh, in the meantime, I think I'm just going to buy some so I can try a triple bitter Manhattan. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> so, Rich, this was great fun. I'm so glad, uh, I'm so glad you, uh, you asked me on and it's, uh, it's been really, really, you know, nice chatting with you. This is I am too. I, I really appreciate your time. Where can people find you online? Uh, pjoakland.com and all the, if you're into the social media stuff, look me up at PJ Oakland, P-J-O-C-H-L-A-N on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the same at PJ Oakland. Cool. Cool. That's, that's great. Oh, and the, the dialect stuff, sorry, is uh, Dr. Dialect. So if you want the, uh, the website for that, it's uh, drdialect.com. That's my company on the coaching side. Oh, cool. You got a separate one there. And you yeah. said that you're still involved with uh, the Dion Institute, right? Yeah, yeah. I co-founded it. Yeah, we uh, we have uh, classes coming up all the time. It's just, they're, they're kind of like an on-demand sort of thing. It's not an ongoing, like, you know, semesters and what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we just plan these these weekend intensives. We're going to introduce pretty soon, I guess I can I can say this, It's uh, nothing's been announced yet, but we're going to introduce like a masterclass series with special guests and uh, have some of that coming up, more like one evening kind of classes. So mm-hmm. that'll be coming up soon but there, there's always something going on so reach out to us uh, through uh, dioninstitute.com or just shoot me an email or get in touch with me and i'll pass you along to all the folks who help us out over there and uh, put you in touch so you can uh, be on the list to find out about upcoming classes and stuff if you're interested so you co-founded but you're still teaching there too right yeah yeah absolutely yeah okay yeah, for sure right. for sure yeah cool yeah i've heard lots of good things haven't made it out there but uh, thanks you should come join us it's always good I- fun I would love to. Actually, what I'd like to do is um, 
kind of organize something where I can spend a week in LA. I've got a lot of people out there that I, that I could see and, um, spending, I will make you a triple bitters Manhattan. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm that much closer now. It's all, it's on the record now. So, uh, so I'm I'm committed. Definitely stopping by Dion was, was my plan if I get out there. So, uh, hopefully I can make that happen. Not sure when, but uh, hopefully I can. So thanks again for coming in PJ. I look forward to seeing you at, uh, I, I, assume that you're going to be at APAC again this year. You assume correctly. All right. Yeah. So I will see you there and probably at Johnny's uh, Splendiferous Workshop the day before. Looking forward to it, man. It'll be great to see you. All right. Thanks, PJ. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to PJ for stopping in. I hope you enjoyed hearing about a child actor that survived and that you got some good tips for making those audiobook characters real. For my part, I took PJ's description of the scene in Goodfellas, where De Niro's Jimmy Conway decides to whack Maury as the excuse I needed to watch one of my favorite movies again. And he's right, there's all kinds of energy in that scene, despite the lack of dialogue. When it was over, I rewound it and watched a few scenes, including that one again, just like I usually do when I watch that movie. You can find the audiobook speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, a place where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you could visit patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy and donate a buck or two. Until we see you here at the Speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers!